Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. This week... We're continuing our two-part look at the criminal justice system in the age of the Me Too movement to find out what happens when someone reports a sexual assault. Last week, we investigated how police handle these crimes. We looked at more than 60 major cities and counties and found that in almost half, police clear the majority of rape cases without ever making an arrest. That's what happens with police. But what about prosecutors? we found that few reported rapes result in criminal charges. We're teaming up again with the online and cable news network Newsy and ProPublica to answer a pretty basic question. Why? And we should let you know that our show deals with graphic allegations of sexual assault, which listeners may find disturbing or triggering. We begin back in January of 2013 in northern Minnesota. It's freezing snows on the ground, and a 55-year-old woman named Ray Florick learns a secret. Well, I woke up that morning in awful pain. Ray is often in pain after a long bout with throat cancer. She's had 15 surgeries because of it. That's why her voice sounds a little scratchy. But this pain is in her arm. I had shoveled the day before and kind of thought, wow, what did I do? So he had called that morning and said his truck wouldn't start. He is Randy Vanette. Ray's off-and-on-again boyfriend for more than four years. He had about a two-hour window of nothing to do when I said, would you please bring me gas and cigarettes and a six-pack of Twisted Tea? And uh, he did. Twisted Tea is an alcoholic iced tea. When Randy shows up, Ray is busy. Trying to take down my Christmas decorations, my arm is bothering me so bad, I've taken a dish towel and made a makeshift sling He doesn't even notice a dish towel hanging around my neck. Right away, he lays down the receipt. So I got the money, paid him, and I offered to make him lunch. He didn't want lunch. He wanted sex. I told him I'm not feeling good. I just, no. I offered him lunch again. He didn't want lunch. And then he just said, well, that's okay, babe. Because last time I was here, I took you two more times after you crashed. I took you two more times after you crashed. In other words, Randy is saying he had sex with Ray while she was asleep and then did it again. Ray can't believe what she's hearing. He was standing by the sliding glass door, still had his boots on. And when he said it, it was just this, 
it was almost too much. And I turned back around and I said, you can't do that, that's like date rape. Ray remembers part of that night he's talking about, the part she says she was awake for. They hung out, had sex, and then she fell asleep. She says she had two of those twisted teas and taken painkillers for her throat, and she slept soundly. Ray does not know that in Minnesota, like most states, it's illegal to have sex with someone who is physically helpless and can't consent to sex. That includes being asleep or unconscious. Ray just knows that what Randy says he did makes her feel violated and betrayed. So betrayed. Because I had no say in it, I had no idea what he did to my unconscious body. Ray wants justice. But like many other women in her situation, she finds it's hard to come by. Here's Newsy's Mark Greenblatt and ProPublica's Bernice Yearn. After Randy drops his bombshell, Ray holes up in her house, unsure of what to do. She can't get what Randy told her off her mind. After three weeks, she calls a friend whose husband is in law enforcement, and he tells Ray that Randy may have committed a crime. Her friend calls the sheriff. A deputy comes to Ray's home, and she tells him she wants to record a secret conversation with Randy to find out exactly what happened. The deputy declines. I'm asking him, can you help me? Because I know it's going to be his word against mine. I wanted them to help him get him on audio or just help me. Wire me up and help me get a confession. He stepped outside, came back in, pretty much said, uh, we could never do that. That's entrapment. But law enforcement officers often use secret recordings to investigate sex crimes. In her case, Ray says the deputy only offers to take a formal statement. You know, I'm like, and then what happens? He said, well, then I go over and talk to him. And I was like, no, 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 no. Because I knew I had to get a, I needed to get that on recording before he had a heads up. Ray believes she needs Randy on tape, so it's not just her word against his. Ray lives in a small town, population 360. It's in a part of Minnesota known as the Iron Range because of all the iron deposits and mining. Even Ray's town, Taconite, is named after a kind of low-grade iron ore. Ray owns a house on a corner lot. She shares it with her poodle, Layla, who she's teaching how to count. You want to count, Layla? Say yes, yes, yes. Well, it was kind of lame, but it'll work. Ray grew up in this area. She strikes me as determined and fiercely independent. But when she talks about what happened, I see her swing between despair and righteousness. When the sheriff's deputy told Ray he wouldn't make a secret recording of Randy, she decided she'd do it herself. So she drove to Walmart to buy a video camera. And then I took the teddy bear that sat on my bed and took a razor blade and cut his belly open and put the camera in there and put him in the closet so I could find out really what the hell happened to me. When she is ready, Ray texts Randy. Randy texts back. It takes a couple of weeks, but eventually, they set a time for Randy to come over. The camera is hidden inside her teddy bear, and the teddy bear is hidden on a shelf just inside her bedroom closet. Before Randy arrives, Ray pushes record. That little humidifier. 
It's nighttime, and the video shows her bedroom, dim with curtains drawn. Randy is in shadow. It looks like he's lying down. Ray is sitting on the bed next to him, smoking. They talk about snowmobiles, people they know around town. Then Ray asks what she really wants to know. What did you do that night after I passed out? What? Yeah, and you had me two more times. Did you pull my arm or did you pull my leg? I didn't pull anything, Randy says, and Ray laughs, but gets serious again. And a warning, what you're about to hear is graphic and disturbing. You knew I was out, passed out, because that's what she said that day in the kitchen. Babe, that night after you passed out, I had you two more times. No, I didn't say passed out. What did you say? What did you say? I don't think you said no, I, it wasn't crashed. Yeah, when we were sleeping. Crashed. Sleeping. When you were sleeping. I had you when you were sleeping. I had you when you were sleeping, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I did. The video ends with Randy leaving. His last words are, I'm sorry, but Ray's not good with technology, and she's so nervous and unsure if the camera worked that she invites Randy back the next day. The Teddy cam is still in place. Ray presses record again. That's Randy. In this video, it's daytime. You can see Ray's bedroom, and you can hear a NASCAR race on the TV. Then Randy and Ray come in, sit on the bed, and eat pizza. As soon as she can, Ray brings up the subject again. Rand, I have to be gross when I'm crashed, and you're me, God. You're beautiful when you're crashed. Stop it. Stop bringing up. You're beautiful. I don't care if you're... You're snuggling next to me. Ray says she was unconscious. Randy calls it snuggling. It seems to Ray that Randy is clear about what happened, that he had sex with her when she was asleep, when she was unable to say yes or no. With the video in hand... Ray tells us that she felt she had the evidence she needed to go back to authorities. Now you got some, some power. Now you yep. got some ammunition. Yep. So now the game has changed. Oh, it was never a game. It was my life. The tables were turned. The tables were the turned. The tables were turned. Because I had the tape. 11 days after taping, six weeks after Randy first told her what he did, Ray takes a copy of the videos to the Itasca County Sheriff's Office. Detective Dean Scherf interviews her. He records the conversation. Four and a half years, he's been a boyfriend of yours? Okay. And just so we're talking about the same person, Randy's kind of tall, slender, bald. Detective Scherf knows where Randy works and where he lives. He used to see him around, sometimes out snowmobiling. The day Ray talks with the detective, her throat is bothering her. So she has to whisper answers to his questions. So would you say that that, uh, after you'd taken your medication on 18th or 19th, that the sex that you had was against your will? Ray's voice is almost too quiet to hear. She says, yes. Okay. Is that what you're reporting? Absolutely. She shows the detective text messages between her and Randy and describes the hidden Teddy cam recordings. He sounds doubtful about the value of her recorded evidence. This recording... You know, they, they, you know, without our control or whatever, it's 
somewhat difficult, it can be difficult to get that entered in as evidence. That's not up to me. I'll certainly submit it as evidence, but if the court accepts it, they accept it. If they don't, they don't. That's just something for us. Ray tells Detective Scherf she hopes prosecutors accept the videos as evidence. He warns her not to get her hopes up. There's always two sides to every story, and, and nine times out of ten on cases like this, so he said, she said type deal. She said, he said, whatever you want to put it. But, and I'm just throwing that out there just so you know. And it can be an uphill battle. I mean, we've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone committed a crime. A week later, the detective calls Randy in. Randy, how you doing? He offers Randy a chair, closes the door. And he opens the conversation. Like I told you yesterday, I just want to talk to you about what her report was and get your version of how things played out. And I mean, I'm not interested in locking you up or anything. You, whatever you tell me here today, you're going you're gonna to walk out of here, okay? You're not charged with anything. You're not under arrest or anything like that. It's just really a, really a sad deal. Well, I know, and it's um, something that no one wants to deal with, but we got to. The report's been made, and, you know, and in this case, it's, she's alleging... Um, a fairly serious allegation that there was some sexual contact between you two when she was under the influence of a prescription drug. That's what she's saying. Randy tells Detective Scherf essentially the same details he told Ray. He repeats the story several times. Okay. So that night, she called me like she, she's done a thousand, a thousand times. I go over there, she's drinking. I know she's drunk. We had sex. And now we're spooning like this. Randy then explains that they fell asleep, and at some point in the middle of the night, he woke up and had sex with Ray again. Did she respond then? No. Did she say no or no? She didn't say yes or no. Randy describes it as romantic. He tells Detective Sheriff he'd done it before, and that sometimes Ray would wake up and have sex with him. Here's what's complicated about this case. It's about consent. They both agree that they'd had consensual sex earlier that night, before going to sleep. And here's what's not complicated. Minnesota law defines consent as overt words or actions, freely given. It also says being in a relationship doesn't equal consent. We want to hear Randy's side of the story ourselves. I reach out to him and his attorney a bunch of times, but he doesn't want to be interviewed. In July, we stop by his house, but he's not home. So I leave him a voicemail. Hi, Mr. Vanette. This is Bernice Hearing, the reporter. Um, I'm in town and uh, was hoping for an opportunity to chat with you when you have a moment. Later that day, Randy sends me a text message, including a photo, of his legs and bare feet dangling over one of Minnesota's 10,000 lakes. There's a message, too. Mr. Call Bernice, he writes. I'm occupied. Months later, Randy emails us. He writes that the rape accusations against him are false. He said that because of the allegations, he's been harassed in person and online. He writes, this has and continues to be very painful to me. Detective Scherf, the cop who interviewed Ray and Randy, has since retired. We asked him if he'd give us his perspective on the case. He agreed and invited Bernice and me to talk at his home. 20 years ago, he built a house on his parents' old dairy farm. Soybean fields spread from his back deck to the Mississippi River. 
a metal sign with a rusty decorative rifle hangs over the front door. Note the uh, sign that we don't dial 911. It says right above his front door. It's pretty good. Hey. Detective, Mark Greenblatt. Dean Scherf. Good to see you. Hi, good to see you again. How are you? Come on in. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us by. Dean Scherf was a sheriff's deputy for Itasca County for almost three decades. He retired as soon as he could to help take care of his wife, who had a stroke a few years back. His cheeks are ruddy, his hair receding. He's down-to-earth and mild-tempered. He comes across as almost unflappable. His living room is cozy, decorated with photos of his grandchildren. That's where we sit down and talk. I ask him why he didn't arrest Randy Vanette after Randy appeared to admit twice on Ray's video and several times when Dean interviewed him that he'd had sex with Ray without her consent. Not to say that there wasn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but there just wasn't a solid enough um, probable cause to make an arrest on that case. It was, uh, she said, he said there was a time lapse from the time it was reported. They were in a a consensual relationship. Um, It wasn't an arrestable case. But in the two Teddy Cam recordings and during Dean's interviews with Randy at the sheriff's office, Randy was candid about that night and what he'd done. Mark presses Dean on that point. Really, the substance of what of what the victim was alleging was that Randy had had sex with her while she was asleep or passed out, mm-hmm. and that she didn't consent to that. Right. Is that a crime? It could be. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I shouldn't say it could be. It is. But are the rest of the elements there to convict him of that crime? What what evidence would you need if if the suspect acknowledges having sex with someone while they were asleep? Do do you need do you need more evidence than that? Well, yeah. I mean, you you have two people that would, the victim saying one thing and the suspect saying no 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 I didn't do that. So that's what you have. There's nothing. There's no other physical evidence or any short of a witness that you're going to prove that case. You had the interviews, you had no physical evidence, you had a he said, she said type deal, you had a recording. With respect, sir, what was he said, she said about it? He's acknowledging that he had sex with someone that he thought was drunk and passed out. What's he said, she said about that? Well, the prosecutor obviously felt that... But in your mind, not the prosecutor, in your mind, what does it take to convince you to make an arrest in a sexual assault case? A lot of things, sometimes and sometimes not. It just It's a case-by-case case deal. When, when the suspect admits to it in front of you in a recorded I'm interview... I'm not going to argue the law with you. I decided not to arrest him. He didn't get charged. That's, that's the way it is. I moved on to the next case. I don't know what else to tell you. We asked Dean about the way he started his interview with Randy, about why he told Randy that he wasn't interested in locking him up or that whatever Randy said, he was still going to walk out of there that day. Dean tells us it's a technique that worked for him a way of disarming suspects to try and get the real story out of them. But if Randy's real story, the one he's told many times, is that he had sex with Ray while she was asleep, it's a violation of Minnesota rape laws. So why then wasn't he arrested? I mean, is it not the case that a woman can be raped when she knows someone? Well, yeah, I mean, it can happen. But I would bet with if you went and gathered all of the cases of that sort that were investigated and compared it to how many people were even charged, it's going to be pretty minimal that were charged. It just don't happen. 
for whatever reason, again, that's up to the prosecutors and the courts. And that's our fine system. It's frustrating. I know. Trust me, I know. But you're a cog in that system, right? Yeah, I was. I'm not anymore. In Minnesota, suspects don't have to be arrested in order to be prosecuted. Dean says he did his job and moved on. He sent the case to the Itasca County attorney and says it was ultimately the prosecutor's job to decide whether to take the case forward. But that didn't happen. The prosecutor declined to file charges, and the case was closed. When we come back, Bernice and Mark track down the man who made the ultimate call to not press charges, and we'll tell you what Ray tried next, because she believed the law was on her side. If you cannot consent, it is rape, period. There's no gray area. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the long-standing problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Ray Florick wants justice after her boyfriend, Randy Vanette, told her that he had sex with her while she was asleep. Because he stole it when he, I was not able to even say yes or no. She feels angry, betrayed, and wants him to face criminal charges for having sex with her when she was unable to give her consent. But prosecutors in Itasca County in Minnesota, where Ray lives, decide not to do that. ProPublica's Bernice Young and Newsy's Mark Greenblatt are investigating why so few sexual assault cases end in charges. Here's Mark. Jack Muhar is Itasca County's chief prosecutor. We got him on the phone late last year. This is Jack. We never meet in person, but I've seen pictures of Jack. In his official headshot for the county, he has a roundish face curly gray hair, and an inviting smile. Right away on the phone, he makes it clear he did not handle Ray's case personally. As I'm sitting here right now, I'm not familiar with the the specifics of uh, the matter at all. Jack has been Itasca County's elected prosecutor for nearly three decades. He leads the office, he sets the tone, and he's ultimately responsible for who gets charged and who doesn't. I ask him how he decides which criminal cases to pursue. So there's kind of a, a 
factual standard and an ethical standard that's involved in that. The standards come from the American Bar Association, which say a prosecutor's decision to charge should be made in the interests of justice. Generally, we prosecute all crimes where a determination has been made uh, that probable cause exists and that there's a reasonable possibility of securing a conviction uh, based upon admissible evidence. Those guidelines lead to a tangible consideration he says is always on his mind as a prosecutor. What will a jury believe? Although it may be more accurate to say, what does Jack imagine a jury will believe? How does a jury perceive these things uh, do you, when you're putting yourself into their shoes and, and how they're uh, assessing that evidence? You know, verdicts uh, for conviction need to be unanimous. But well before juries hear any evidence, prosecutors have already made a really big decision. They alone can decide what criminal cases they take on, whether to press charges or to pass. Police departments typically track the way that they handle cases. That information is often available to the public and sometimes offers insights into prosecutors' decisions. But more often than not, we're left in the dark. We know this because we asked more than 500 prosecutors across more than a half dozen states for their records. We wanted to compare what kinds of rape cases they take, what kinds they reject, and why. We learned that there's no uniform or comprehensive standard for this kind of record keeping, and often it doesn't exist at all. This makes it very hard to understand why prosecutors make the decisions that they do, let alone hold them accountable for those decisions. Three months after Ray reported to the Itasca County Sheriff's Office that she had been raped, she got a letter from the county. It was from the lead criminal prosecutor, Todd Webb. He wrote that there was insufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Randy had raped her. Webb wrote that it did not mean a crime did not occur or Ray was not a victim, only that it cannot be prosecuted with the evidence available. Randy points to the fact that no criminal charges were filed against him as proof that he didn't break the law. But to Ray, it felt like betrayal all over again. I was devastated. I was angry. And I felt really hopeless. You wanted the trial. Oh, that you could for all the tea in China. This I wanted justice and I wanted him exposed. Typically, this is where rape cases stop. No arrest, no prosecution. But Ray didn't stop there. She called a lawyer who had helped her in the past. My name is Ellen Tholen, and I'm a private attorney in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. When Ellen learned the details of Ray's case, she was surprised prosecutors hadn't filed charges. It's pretty black and white in the summary that was written out by the investigator where Mr. Vanette admitted that he had intercourse with her when she was asleep. Ellen knows the players in Itasca County's legal system. In fact, she ran to be chief prosecutor herself, twice. So she offered to help by talking with Todd Webb, the prosecutor who turned down Ray's case. Ellen emailed Ray the next day to tell her about the conversation. In the email, she writes that Webb told her he thought a jury would be skeptical because Ray and Randy had had consensual sex before. Ellen points out that Minnesota law is clear on this. 
Consent has nothing to do with the existence of a prior or current relationship. Ellen also says that Todd Webb didn't think Ray's secret Teddy Cam recordings of Randy amounted to a confession. She says Webb instead thought Randy was making concessions, trying to keep the peace so that Ray would sleep with him again. Webb wouldn't talk with us, but in an email, he repeated many of the same things. And he offered another reason he felt that it would have been hard to move forward with the case. He wrote that Ray, quote, cannot testify as to what happened because she has no personal knowledge of what happened. That was another comment, and I I said that's because she wasn't conscious. That's why she didn't recall it. Before declining the case, Webb told us he consulted two fellow prosecutors. One was Jim Ousted, who also spoke to Ellen. She says he told her he thought the Teddy Cam recordings unfairly set Randy up. Ellen disagreed. She reads out loud the email she wrote documenting their conversation. I asked what her motive would be to, quote, set him up, closed quote, and he said maybe she's on welfare. I told him she was disabled but owned her own home, etc. He also thought she lied on the video when she said she did not use drugs but had pled guilty in the last year. There's no evidence for this. I've looked and can find no record that Ray's ever had a drug conviction. Ellen said she found Alfsted's excuses appalling. Because they have nothing to do with the evidence of whether a crime was committed or not. Whether somebody, um, what their economic status is, has nothing to do with being victimized. Whether they have a child who's involved in drugs or has issues, that should not be a factor on whether you're a victim or not. Um, You can be a victim if you're you, me, anybody can be a victim. And the reasons I didn't prosecute was based upon in a large part, um, Ms. Florick's character as they perceived it. We tried to verify the conversation Ellen says she had with Jim Osted, but he wouldn't talk to me about it on the record. He directed me to the Itasca County Attorney's Office, and they declined to comment by our deadline. Herb Tanner sees Ray's case differently. I look at this case as being more winnable than the prosecutor who made the decision. Herb spent 10 years as a prosecutor in Michigan. Since leaving that job, he's led a statewide effort to improve the way law enforcement treats sexual assault investigations. And now he travels the country, training prosecutors on more sophisticated techniques for tackling rape cases. We ask him to review key documents from Ray's case, including the video transcripts and sheriff's interviews. Herb says he does understand Todd Webb's concerns. Yes, this kind of case comes with a set of challenges, but we know how to overcome them. I start to get the sense that the challenges were given greater weight than investigating how to overcome them. Atasca County prosecutors say they didn't pursue Ray's case in part because six weeks passed before she made a formal complaint to the sheriff. But Herb says prosecutors could just show the jury how common delayed reporting is. As for concerns that Ray and Randy had some kind of sexual relationship already. Really, the prior sex is is pretty meaningless because it, it would be hard to argue, I think, with a straight face hey, the prior sex made me legitimately think that 
she would consent to this while she was unconscious. And when it came to concerns about the secret recordings Ray made, Herb says prosecutors could have explained that police often help victims do this with alleged sex abusers. You're just not asking him or encouraging him or pressuring him to do a criminal act. You're just talking to him. You're asking him questions. It's not entrapment. It's an investigative technique that is used all across this fair land. Herb says juries have stereotypes about rape that can be hard to overcome in the courtroom. For example, he says juries feel more comfortable convicting when there are physical injuries from rape, which may happen in a violent assault, say, with a stranger. But most rapes happen between people who know each other. In the end, Herb says there's another type of trauma that's more universal. What we've learned talking to survivors is that it's that betrayal of trust. It's that betrayal of bodily integrity. It's that taking away of that ability to decide who is going to be inside you. Herb says in the interests of justice, prosecutors should take on rape cases with good evidence, even challenging ones, and not assume what a jury will do. Because there's one thing we know for sure. If you don't try it, you aren't going to get a guilty verdict. Does Itasca County try? Prosecutors there had about 170 sex crime cases brought to them by law enforcement in the last five years. Everything from chatting about sex with a child online to rape. And prosecutors accepted around 40% of those cases. That means they rejected more than half, including Ray's. And when you look at what kinds of cases they chose to prosecute, a clear pattern emerges. Over five years, Itasca County charged over 40 suspects with rape. In nearly every case, the victim was a child. In the few cases with adult victims, the suspect used force or coercion. Experts say cases like these play well with juries. But rapes between two people who know each other, cases like Ray's, are much harder to prosecute, even though they're much more common. After prosecutors declined Ray's case, she got angry. Her experience with how her rape allegations were handled made her question lessons she'd been taught all her life about a woman's place. It was to just grow up and be a domestic goddess and have children, and that was it. That was it. That, that There were no other, like, go to college or, or anything else like that. It was just, that's your role. For decades, Ray tried to follow that script, but she's done with it now. In her small town, her case has become well-known, and she was surprised by how some people reacted. One friend said, well, I was raped when I was young, and it didn't bother me. I don't know what's wrong with you. Just uh, last week at the parade, a gal said to me, I do understand. I was raped, too once by my brother's friend, and then again later, but I put myself in the wrong place. So, you know, it's ingrained. It's ingrained in us here. I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but it is here. For Ray, the last straw came when she heard about another woman who filed a police report against Randy. The woman also accused him of having sex with her when she was unconscious and unable to consent. 
through email, Randy called that woman's accusations a lie. Her claims were never prosecuted. But when Ray heard about this, she resolved to take up her own fight in a new way. In the fall of 2015, more than two years after everything started, Ray sues Randy in civil court. I am worth having my rights validated and protected. There's a growing movement of rape victims who turn to civil court after the criminal justice system stops moving forward with their cases. But it can set them up for scrutiny about their sexual history and other parts of their personal life, topics that are sometimes allowed to be brought up on the civil side that would likely be barred in a criminal trial. I talk with her at her home the night before that trial begins, wondering what she's expecting. To be heard. To tell my story. I'm in the courtroom for all three days of the trial. No recording is allowed. The jury hears Ray tell her story. They watch large segments of the Teddy Cam videos where Randy says he had sex with Ray while she was sleeping. They also hear Randy testify in person. His lawyer asks him, Are you a rapist? Randy says, No. In court, Randy says he loved Ray, but calls her mentally unstable and a bad mom. Randy's lawyer paints a picture of slow, sleepy sex between the two throughout the night. Ray says that's not what happened. The testimony is often personal and acrimonious. Then, before the jury heads off to deliberate, Randy's lawyer tries to frame this case as a big cultural question. He tells the jury it will be a sad day for the world when a dedicated couple would have to have clear verbal consent each time they have sex. He also cautions the jury to be skeptical of Ray's claim, saying that law enforcement wasn't interested in this case and that prosecutors had turned it down. Civil trials are very different from criminal ones. The level of proof is much lower and the jury is smaller. Just six men and one woman consider two claims against Randy. The first is battery. Jurors must decide if Randy intentionally caused harmful or offensive contact with Ray. They deliberate almost four hours. And for this charge, they answer no. The second claim against Randy is a charge known as negligence per se. The question to jurors is this. Did Randy intentionally penetrate Ray when he knew or had reason to know she was physically helpless? In other words, unable to consent. On this question, they answer yes. Randy did. We asked Randy about these charges. By email, he responded that because the jury did not find him liable for battery, it's evidence he was justifiably never charged with a crime. We talked to one juror, Jeff Solberg, who says he believes Ray was unconscious or close to it and didn't want to have sex. I would call it rape, yes. Yes, anytime anybody is unconscious and stuff, um, it, it's, in, in my book, it's rape. Um, I don't care if, 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 if you've been dating for a lifetime. I've been with my wife for 28 years, and I would never even think of doing anything like that and, and would consider it rape if I, if I did. To be clear, rape is a criminal charge. Jeff and the other jurors found Randy liable for a civil violation, negligence per se. They awarded Ray $5,000 for emotional distress. 
After the verdict, Ray celebrates at a busy bar with her lawyer and some friends. Cheers, what do you want to say? Justice! Victory! Ray tells me that, at this moment, she feels relieved and vindicated. I'm just reeling. I'm just reeling. I got more justice than I really ever expected. Our justice system succeeded today. But they succeeded today. Yeah, I do believe in the judicial system when it is applied. The civil case is a victory for Ray, but it's an incomplete victory. She's still fighting for a criminal trial and is hoping a newly elected prosecutor will take on her case. Meanwhile, Randy is appealing the civil verdict. He's also fighting criminal charges for something else. Authorities say that while he was preparing for the civil trial brought by Ray, Randy posted topless photos of her online. This so-called revenge porn potentially carries prison time. Randy pled not guilty, and a trial is scheduled for next month. What happened to Ray in Minnesota isn't uncommon. We dig into the research and find that reported rape cases rarely lead to an arrest or prosecution. Prosecutors told us that even if we believe the victim, we think, what's a jury going to do? Will they believe her? Will they convict her? That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Lenton. Over the past two weeks, we've seen what happens when a rape is reported to police and how hard it is for victims to get their case in front of a jury. The people who decide how to handle these cases are the police and prosecutors, and they have discretion whether or not to move cases forward. That's a lot of influence. So big picture, what are they doing with that power? The vast majority of cases do not go forward. Surprise, surprise. Linda Williams is a criminologist and a sociologist at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. She's been studying sexual assault for more than 40 years. She and two partners at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, tracked close to 3,000 rape cases through the justice system from start to finish. We found, in fact, that about only one in five of reports resulted in the arrest of a suspect. The chances of a conviction are even lower. So 189 cases had a guilty outcome. So if you took that out of the 2,887 cases, it's really 6%. Pretty dismal. Pretty dismal. A sign of a bigger problem. It matters because we want our justice system to work. Of course, we want to make sure that Innocent people are not falsely accused or convicted and go to prison. And our system is designed to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But when serious crimes happen, crimes of violence that are really felonies and cases are not going forward, then we have a concern about whether the system is really serving us in terms of justice. Linda asks, in the face of these statistics... Why would any victim come forward? 
Why would I go to the police and go through all of this and be upset, lose time from work, testifying or or being interviewed by detectives and so forth when like only one in five chance the guy's going to even get arrested and he's not going to end up being adjudicated. He'll still be out on the streets. So, you know. She says in this system, rape victims really have to ask themselves what justice means for them. If you will only be happy if a conviction happens, then you're going to probably not be happy. Linda's research tries to find out what's behind these dismal numbers. She and her partners work with prosecutors and police in six jurisdictions, some big, some small. These were police departments that had records that we could review to look at what the allegations were, what the police and detective responses were. Now, that doesn't mean the records were all easy to access. Some of these reports were handwritten and hard to unearth. This is part of what makes Linda's study so very rare and so interesting, because it offers a window into decisions made behind closed doors, decisions that police and prosecutors make that determine the fate of rape cases. Linda wanted to find out... What are the factors behind the decision-making? Some of Linda's most interesting findings look at all the cases that don't end up with an arrest or a conviction. Last week, we told you about something called exceptional clearance. Police can clear cases this way if they've established probable cause, but something stands in their way of arresting a suspect. Perhaps he died or he's already in another prison, he's been convicted elsewhere, or he's left the jurisdiction or maybe the United States entirely. Exceptional clearance is supposed to be used rarely, but our investigation found that many cities clear rape cases this way much more often than making an arrest. So this is a huge proportion of cases that don't go anywhere. In the jurisdictions Linda looked at, her research showed that almost a third of rape investigations were closed using exceptional clearance. This was a new phenomenon to me to understand how many cases would end up going that route. And um, we were very surprised by it. Linda says this jump is very concerning, that these are cases where police have the evidence to arrest a rape suspect. But the problem is that that doesn't happen And when it doesn't happen, they don't even have a record. Their DNA may not even go in to get a hit the next time they do something like this. And they're let go. They're free to go. Clearing cases exceptionally, it's a police decision, at least on paper. But Linda's research shows that prosecutors exert a lot of influence. In police departments she studied, detectives met regularly with prosecutors to discuss cases. And cases with factors that may be considered challenging to prosecution are rejected at this stage, such as incidents where a victim was engaging in some quote-unquote risk-taking behavior. Alcohol has a big part in this, too. Prosecutors say when victims are drunk or taking drugs that it's harder to win in court, harder to convince a jury to convict a suspect. Prosecutors told us that even if we believe the victim, we think, what's a jury going to do? Will they believe her? Will they convict? Earlier in the show, we heard prosecutors in Ray's case say they didn't think a jury would convict. 
It's one of the reasons they gave for not moving forward with her case. Linda says this concern about juries comes up all the time from prosecutors, but that it doesn't really make sense because jury trials turn out to be really rare. Way more rape cases end in plea deals than go before a jury. It was surprising to me that there were so few cases that went in front of a jury when people have spent so much energy and so much time talking about how to prepare victims and the concern about the jury. And yet, out of 3,000 cases, you have a handful that go to a trial. But Linda argues that more types of rape cases should go all the way to a jury trial. She says right now, prosecutors are mostly bringing select cases to court, more winnable cases, cases that conform to a jury's stereotype about what rape is and isn't. Linda wants to see prosecutors do more to change a jury's understanding of rape. In my opinion, the more cases that are brought forward, that's part of educating the community. That's part of educating the jury. If we only take forward those cases that are the classic, I'm using quotes now, the real rapes, that it was someone in an alley who jumps out and assaults a woman of very good character and standing who hasn't been drinking, who just came from, you know, her her tea, then, um, then those are what people think are real and what happened. The Department of Justice estimates only 20% of victims ever come forward to report rape or sexual assault to police. Linda says... One of the big reasons why is they don't trust the criminal justice system to give them justice. After 40 years of doing this work, Linda tries to remind herself that things have gotten better over time. I'm optimistic, but I'm concerned that it's slow. It's very slow. And how much of a lifetime do we have? You know, will it, will it change? Um, and that's the concerning part. There's a lot more work to be done. A lot more work to be done. Yeah. Linda Williams directs the Justice and Gender-Based Violence Research Initiative at the Wellesley Centers for Women. Her new study is expected to be published early next year. It's co-authored by April Padovina and Melissa Schaefer-Morbito, both of the University of Massachusetts Lowell. We gathered lots of original data for the last two shows. Data we think you may appreciate seeing for yourself. You can find out how often police in cities near you clear rape cases without making an arrest by going to revealnews.org slash case cleared. That's all one word. Again, that's revealnews.org slash case cleared. ProPublica's Bernice Yearn, along with Mark Greenblatt and Mark Fahey of Newsy, reported today's show. Our lead producer was Emily Harris. Brett Myers edited the show with help from Andy Donahue. And Newsy's Lawan Hamilton and Ellen Weiss. Special thanks to Zach Kuson, Kenny Jacoby, Vic Narayan, and Luke Piotrowski of Newsy. Michael Corey and Eric Segarra of Reveal. And Sophie Chow, Robin Fields, Lena Grauger, Ryan Grahowski-Jones, and CeCe Way of ProPublica. We'd also like to thank Cheryl Phillips with Big Local News, a Stanford journalism program that'll be hosting the data behind our last two shows. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Original score and sound design was by the dynamic duo, my man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help from Caitlin Benz and Catherine Raimondo. 
Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our senior supervising editor is Taki Telenitis. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Ledson, and remember, there is always more to the story.